Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Hello everyone and welcome to True North True Crime. Thanks for being here. Today's episode is something a little different to mark the Halloween season. This episode originally aired for our TNTC Plus subscribers this time last year and we thought we would re-release it on our main feed. So grab your favorite cozy beverage and cuddle up as we tell you the tale of Francis Rattenbury. and welcome to your Patreon-exclusive episode for October. Thanks for joining us. We're obviously in a spooky mood this month, so we wanted to bring you a historic murder case that has been linked to a haunting in one of British Columbia's most iconic buildings. That would be the BC Parliament Buildings in Victoria, which many people know as the BC Legislature or the Ledge. Tonight we are talking about the 1935 murder of Francis Rattenbury. This murder actually occurred in Bournemouth, England. However, this story has its origins in Canada. And the ghost of Francis Rattenbury is believed to haunt Victoria, British Columbia to this day. We put this episode together using publicly available news articles, including an article in Monte Cristo magazine written by Jesse Donaldson titled The Outrageous Life and Death of Francis Rattenbury. The setting for this tale is Victoria, which is the capital city of British Columbia. Geographically, Victoria is on the southern tip of Vancouver Island and is also Canada's southernmost city. Victoria can also be a spooky place with many haunted locations. There are so many historic buildings and areas, like Craig Derrick Castle, the Empress Hotel, the oldest Chinatown in North America, the Parliament Building, and Ross Bay Cemetery, just to name a few. Stories about Victoria's dark secrets have abounded for decades. As some of you may remember, in our first year, we covered the 1899 murder of Agnes Bings. 
while the origins of this case were actually happening around the exact same time. Let's take you back to the 1890s when this case begins. The streets of Victoria were bustling in the 1890s. The city had established itself as a trade hub with goods flowing through its port. The island had built the ENN Railway, which brought natural resources down from the North Island. The port was busy with many large steamer ships jostling for position. It wasn't uncommon to see side wheelers and rear paddle ships. Smoke billowed from the many chimneys of the town. Although the city was modern at the time, it still had mainly dirt roads that would become muddy with the seasonal rain. The transit system had just put in five streetcars to support the growth of the city. These were the days when a lady was rarely seen without ribbons and petticoats, and men wore hats and suspenders. The city also boasted a red light district and nightlife for men coming into town with money to burn after a successful gold rush or stints in mining or forestry. Victoria was still enjoying the afterglow of the immense economic boom brought by the Klondike Gold Rush. When the city had acted as a prime supplier for the thousands stampeding north to the Yukon. The victim and possible ghost in this story is Francis Mawson Rattenbury. Francis was born on October 11, 1867, in the city of Leeds, England. By the young age of 17, Francis had decided that he wanted to become an architect. His mother wanted him to go into the family wool business, but Francis had bigger dreams. In 1884, he enrolled in an apprentice program with the Lockwood and Mawson Company in England. After his apprenticeship ended, he would often brag to people that he trained under the renowned English architect Henry Francis Lockwood, although this was not true as Lockwood had died when Rattenbury was just 11 years old. This was in character for Francis, who had a very braggadocious personality, and he often overinflated his accomplishments. However, it was this ability to bloviate about his credentials that would lead people to place their confidence in his abilities. Francis continued to hear of opportunities that were occurring in Canada, and he wanted to be a part of it. In 1891, Francis would arrive in Vancouver, British Columbia. At the time, the city was on a massive economic boom bolstered by the gold rush in the Yukon. Francis took out an ad in a local newspaper announcing his arrival and his slightly falsified credentials. There was an arrogance about Francis when he arrived in Vancouver. There was an assumption that work would come to him as soon as he arrived. But that wasn't the case right away. Despite his big announcement and his embellished resume, work was hard to come by. So he set his sights on Victoria. Upon his arrival, an opportunity presented itself that changed his life forever. The people of Victoria had long hated the parliament building in their city, so the powers that be decided to have an architectural competition. Sixty-six architects from around the world submitted their designs. Francis jumped at this opportunity and submitted his own design. It was an ambitious 600,000-square-foot building in a style described as a blending of Romanesque, Classic, and Gothic. After two rounds of voting, Rattenbury was declared the winner, and from there, his career trajectory was legendary. He went on to design many landmark buildings throughout British Columbia. But the young architect was a micromanager, and incredibly difficult to work with. 
He was known as a control freak. He altered his designs constantly. He ordered costly and last-minute changes. He would often send back building materials that had already been purchased. If anyone on his team or supervising the project questioned him, he would end up in legendary yelling matches. He also had a bad habit of underestimating the costs in order to win commissions, and then saddling his contractors with any of those overruns. This made him incredibly unpopular to work with. Historian Terry Rexon stated that his character has received universally bad reviews. Residents of Victoria, B.C. who remembered him were quick to admit that he was a genius, but he had few real friends, more than his share of enemies, and those who became close to him were left embittered by the experience. Another historian stated, quote, Oh, he was a dick. He was going to take on anyone who stood in his way. Eventually, after many delays, the Parliament buildings were completed, $400,000 over budget, and they opened to the public in 1898. But Francis wasn't done putting his mark on Victoria. He would also go on to design the world-famous Empress Hotel, thus completing the Gothic appearance of Victoria's Inner Harbor in 1908. Despite his personality issues, Francis was an eligible and successful bachelor in the market for a wife— and he had many offers. At the end of the construction of the Parliament buildings, he married Florence Nunn, the daughter of a retired British army officer. History had not been kind in its descriptions of Florence, with most articles referring to her as physically unattractive and lacking in social skills. However, there was a kind and sweet nature to Florence that appealed to Francis. Perhaps her calm demeanor was a healthy contrast to Francis and his arrogance. Francis had invested in several boats being used to transport workers as well as equipment into the Klondike for the gold rush. Florence and Francis were married near the BC-Alaska border. In fact, their honeymoon was a hike across the daunting and dangerous Chilkoot Pass, a crossing that had killed many Klondike-bound prospectors. The timing of their wedding was suspect for the era as roughly seven months later, they had their first child, they would then add a second child to their family years later. But good fortune would momentarily run out for Francis. The gold rush ended and he returned to Victoria looking for more architecture work. Eventually, Francis and his family would move into a desirable home in beachfront Oak Bay. Success would come for Francis yet again. He designed multiple notable buildings such as the Nanaimo Courthouse and the Vancouver Courthouse, which is now the Vancouver Art Gallery as well as assorted banks, homes, and hotels all over the province. At one time, he was the chief architect for both the Canadian Pacific Railway and the Bank of Montreal. He also designed Victoria High School and the Chateau Lake Louise. Life was good. Rattenbury, or Rats, as he was known, was on a high. He wanted for nothing. He was a part of high society and a famous name in town. At home, he showered Florence with gifts and encouraged her to join him at events. But the humble Florence did not see the appeal of high society. She preferred to stay home with the children. Perhaps this was creating a rift between the two. And as is the story of success, it never lasts, and things did begin to fall apart for Francis. In 1912, Rattenbury's main business partner died on the Titanic and with him sank a large new railway project that Francis had invested in. 
By 1918, Rattenbury found himself unable to compete with the new generation of architects, projects that would once have been his automatically, now went to others. He'd lost much of his fortune in bad investments, and his career was in tatters. He was unhappy in his marriage. Drinking and feeling sorry for himself became a part of his daily routine. Behind the facade of public success, his personal life deteriorated. He and Florence were not a good match, and grew to dislike one another. They remained together, but Rattenbury lived in his own part of the house and only communicated with his wife through their daughter. Drinking excessively, he grew gloomy and reclusive. Depressed and grouchy, he was known as Old Rats by the neighborhood children. But, as is the story of Francis Rattenbury, good fortune would shine on him yet again. The Victoria Chamber of Commerce asked Rattenbury to submit plans for a swimming pool. Known for extravagance in his projects, he designed an immense entertainment center, including shops, ballrooms, tropical gardens, picture galleries, and three heated saltwater pools. The entire complex covered more than 9,000 square meters and was enclosed by a single roof of glass and steel. Public interest in the complex was intense, and on December 19, 1923, a city referendum was held on the question of building the Crystal Gardens in return for tax exemptions for the CP Railway, who offered to fund the projects. It was passed with a majority vote, and Francis Rattenbury was the king of Victoria real estate once again. That evening, the 56-year-old Francis Rattenbury was the guest of honor at a celebration in his honor at the Empress Hotel dining room. Afterwards, intoxicated with success and many drinks, he sauntered into the Bengal lounge and came face to face with a glamorous and enchanting woman by the name of Alma Pakenham. This meeting would change his life forever. Alma, who was originally from Kamloops, was in her mid-twenties when she met 56-year-old Rattenbury that evening. Historians have described her as beautiful, with a lovely oval face, deep, haunting, sad eyes, and full lips which easily settled into a pout, at once fashionable and sensuous. Her voice had a warm, vibrant quality, pitched very low, musically slow and distinct. Alma had been married twice. Her first marriage ended in death, and the second in divorce. She was also the mother of an infant son. Her first husband died in France during the war in 1916. Alma joined the French Red Cross after his death and served as an ambulance driver. She was wounded twice and decorated by the French government. After the war, she became involved with a married man, Thomas Pakenham. This led to that man's divorce. Alma and Pakenham married in early 1921 and their son was born the same summer. But the relationship soon broke down, and Alma returned with her son to her mother's home in Vancouver. People who knew Alma as a child stated that she was brilliantly clever, a vivid little thing full of happiness and music, with a special attraction of her own. She also had a special musical talent, and during her teens performed piano and violin with the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. So after her divorce, she revived her musical career and began to give concerts in Vancouver and Victoria. That's how she happened to be in the lounge of the Empress Hotel after Rattenbury's victory dinner. Alma was a woman who thwarted traditional roles. She was unlike the other women of her era. She was called a free-spirited flapper who scandalized Victoria's upper classes by smoking and drinking with the men in public. 
Upon their first meeting, the two were transfixed. This relationship would send them on a deadly path of which there was no escape. After meeting Francis for the first time, Alma wrote to a friend. In the letter, she stated, I had been playing in Victoria, and on returning to the hotel, I sat yarning for a while in the lounge. From the banqueting hall came the sounds of revelry and singing. My friend Kay suggested that we should try to get a peep into the room, which we did. And to Kay's amazement, he found that the honored guest was an old acquaintance. Soon after, some of the men strolled in to finish cigars and pipes. Kay introduced me to his acquaintance, and so it was that I first met my rats. Alma was not deterred by Francis's age or his marital status. A week or so after, she met him at a dance. At this time, she expressed to him that he had the kindest face and that she found him irresistible. For Francis, he was smitten. His project was being built, he was on top again, and by his side he had a beautiful woman. Alma moved out of her mother's home in Vancouver to Victoria, where she leased a small house in James Bay on Niagara Street near the Parliament buildings. Francis became a frequent visitor. Neighbors saw him going in and out of the home often at all hours of the day. Alma and Francis carried on their affair openly, with no concern for public opinion or Florence's feelings. They appeared together at social functions. Florence had never been accepted by Victoria society, and Francis felt everyone was bound to support him now that he'd found someone more suitable. But this was not the case. The gossip and rumors started to spread around Victoria. Not only did people surmise that they were sleeping together— but there were also rumors of drug use, specifically cocaine and morphine. Many medical staff, especially injured ones like Alma, had come back from the war with substance misuse issues. The gossip was that she was a drug addict who had addicted the poor architect. Francis's erratic behavior was chalked up to be from cocaine use. Others stated that Francis had become bewitched by his new love. Francis did not care. He demanded that Florence give him a divorce. When Florence refused to grant him a divorce, he moved out and then cut off her lights and water. Florence still refused, so Rattenbury began entertaining Alma at the family home in Oak Bay. Alma and Francis would fondle one another in the living room while Florence retreated to the upstairs with her children. But by 1925, humiliated and brokenhearted, Florence lost the will to fight and she allowed the divorce. For the second time in her life, Alma was named in a divorce suit as the other woman. Soon after, Francis and Alma were married, and then they had a son. They were intensely happy. Francis believed that their marriage would be a coming-out party for the now-legitimate couple, but it was not. They were shunned by everyone in Victoria. All of his friends and colleagues turned on him. This was compounded in 1929, when Florence died. Many saw Francis and Alma as the cause of the betrayed woman's death. After all, how could he treat the mother of his children this way? In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. 
Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. By 1929, he found himself publicly shunned and avoided on the streets. His relationship with Alma had estranged him from everyone he'd ever cared for, including his two grown children. Their affair had left them social pariahs, even after they had a son and settled into respectable domesticity. Work had dried up for Francis, as no one wanted to work with him anymore. At the end of 1929, the couple discussed it between themselves and realized it would be best if they just leave. They packed up to move to England, settling on the coastal resort town of Bournemouth. The only person who came to see them off on the day of their departure for England was his son Frank. Speaking of it later, Frank commented that Alma was, quote, in a stupor from booze or something else. So Francis Rattenbury who had landed in Canada by proudly announcing his presence, left under a cloud of silence and scandal. His buildings still to this day define cities across the province, but on this day, he quietly left the country. They gave him so much. But North America was not yet done with Francis. On the first leg of his journey home, he was hustled by some gamblers and lost his money while in New York City. Fearing for his life and deeply in debt to these men, Francis and Alma fled on a late-night train to Montreal, then boarded a ship for Europe. Six months after leaving Victoria, the Rattenburys settled into their new life in the seaside town of Bournemouth, England. During this time, Francis struggled financially and for relevance. His star had fallen so far from revered architect to an unemployed person living in a rented home. They did live comfortably, though, They had two servants who ran their home for them, but Francis obsessed about money, and with no options on the horizon, he grew stressed. Alma, on the other hand, was enjoying some success. Some of her songs had been printed to sheet music, thus bringing in royalties. These checks, however, were disappointingly small compared to the money they had become accustomed to. Francis sank into a depression, drinking, sleeping, and sulking. He lost interest in sex with his wife. Alma began seeking out the attention of other men outside of their marriage. At first, she did not have any affairs. She was more flirtatious, but that all changed when the couple hired a new driver. 17-year-old George Stoner applied for the job of the family chauffeur and handyman in September of 1934. George Stoner was a high school dropout with very few skills. He was described by his uncle as a good, honest boy and the best boy I have ever seen in my life. Alma interviewed George Stoner, and she was obviously impressed with him. She hired him and offered him a spare bedroom for his lodging. So 17-year-old George Stoner moved in, and by November of 1934, 
He was Alma's live-in lover. Alma was attracted to his youth. She saw him as pliable and easily influenced to do her bidding. She also loved his lack of sophistication and his lack of understanding of the upper class. Francis was for the most part unaware of the affair. By this point, he had gone mostly deaf and remained drunk and suicidal on most days. George Stoner fell in love with Alma and the two enjoyed their affair. Alma believed she was in love with Stoner. The teenager had been transformed virtually overnight from an innocent youth to the lover of a married woman. In March of 1935, Stoner chauffeured Alma to London for a lover's holiday. After three days of dining, shopping, and theater going, they returned home to find Francis suicidal and drunk in his chair. Alma comforted Francis as much as she could, and George Stoner misunderstood her kindness to Francis as a sign that she was no longer interested in continuing the affair. He became jealous and angry. Emotional and not very smart, George would fly into a rage any time Alma suggested they break off their affair, and on one occasion, he tried to strangle her. On the afternoon of March 25th, Francis had a moment of vulnerability. He asked Alma if the two could talk. During this time, he revealed that he knew of the affair. He expressed his love for Alma. Alma was touched by this display of affection. It had been a long time since she had seen the man she fell in love with be so open and honest. It felt as if she was speaking to her old rats one more time. The two made love that day. Later that afternoon, George caught wind of what had happened. He confronted Alma and threatened her by placing a gun to her face. Alma calmed the young man down, but the fuse had been lit. That night, around 10 p.m., Francis was passed out drunk in his chair, and George approached him from behind with a carpenter's mallet in his hand. Without warning, he beat Francis in the head with the mallet, striking him over and over again until his skull caved under the pressure of the blows. At around midnight, George went upstairs and got into bed with Alma. Alma awoke and heard some groaning coming from the main floor. She went downstairs and found Francis unconscious in his chair, his hair matted with blood. The blows to his head were so brutal that the back of his skull had collapsed and his false teeth had fallen out. When the doctor arrived, she said Francis must have fallen and hit his head on the piano. But when the police arrived, she told them Francis had tried to kill himself with a wooden mallet. Realizing this story wasn't going to work, she revised it. First saying she'd hit Francis with the mallet, then that Stoner had done it. Francis was taken to a nearby nursing home. Alma had several drinks while the police officers asked her more questions. She offered the policeman money, then tried to kiss him. The officers were not impressed. She then offered another explanation. As she stood barefoot in her pajamas drinking a glass of whiskey, she stated that, I did it deliberately. I would do it again. Her statement to the police continued. She said that she'd been playing cards with her husband and that he dared me to kill him. He wanted to die. She then stated she picked up a mallet and he said, You have not guts enough to do it. She then hit him with the mallet and hit it outside the house. I would have shot him if I had a gun, she said. Three days later on March 28, 1935, Francis Rattenbury died from his injuries. As the police searched the home for clues, they came across love letters between Stoner and Alma. It was then that they began to understand that this was a love triangle gone bad. 
Alma and George were both arrested and charged with the murder of Francis Rattenbury. In May of 1935, the trial was one of the most famous and most followed of the era. It had everything the public appetite desired. Sex, alcohol, drugs, and violence. Alma was portrayed as a monster who used her influence on the young George to do her will. George was painted as a rage-filled cocaine addict, unable to control his violent nature. The Old Bailey Courthouse in London was the venue for this trial that was followed by every major newspaper from London to Victoria. After a visit in prison from her son, Alma recanted her confession and hired a prominent lawyer. The public lined up to get a seat and the press had a field day. Alma testified and is said to have handled the questions with poise. Her testimony laid the blame on George. Both pleaded not guilty. Stoner didn't deny that he had struck Rattenbury, but his counsel pleaded temporary insanity. Stoner did not testify, and expert witness testimony to his alleged cocaine addiction proved inconclusive. After a 47-minute deliberation, the jurors brought back their verdict. Alma was found innocent on all charges, but they found George Stoner guilty with a recommendation for mercy. The judge felt no mercy. He had George moved to the center of the courtroom and delivered a death sentence. The execution, a death by hanging, was scheduled for June 18, 1935. Over the next four days, Alma wandered around in a daze, and she became suicidal. At one point, she attempted to jump into traffic, but there were too many people around her. At another point, she attempted to jump in front of a train, but stopped when she noticed people recognized her. Then, on May 31, 1935, a farmer saw Alma standing on the banks of a river. In her right hand was a knife. She stabbed herself six times in the heart and fell into the river. She died that day. Inside of her handbag was a note with her final words. If only I had thought it would help Stoner, I would stay on. But it has been pointed out to me all too vividly that I cannot help him. That is my death sentence. I praise God, nothing stops me. God bless my children and look after them. It is beautiful here. What a lovely world we are in. It must be easier to be hanged than have to do the job oneself, especially under these circumstances of being watched all the while. Thank God for peace at last. Alma's solution to her sadness at Stoner's upcoming execution was for nothing. A campaign began for him to get exonerated, and it was strengthened, ironically, by Alma's suicide. Thousands protested for him to be released. The outraged public blamed Alma for corrupting George Stoner, and when presented with a clemency petition signed by 350,000 people, the Home Secretary agreed. Stoner's sentence was commuted to life in prison. Seven years later, he was released so that he could fight in World War II. After the war, he returned to Bournemouth. He was married in 1944 and fathered a daughter in 1948. He and his wife spent the rest of their days in the Bournemouth area, and he died at Christchurch Hospital in 2000 at the age of 83. For many years, reporters would try to get the truth from George of what happened on the night of the murder. Some decades later, George made a statement to a reporter from the Bournemouth Daily Echo. He didn't really clarify anything, simply stating, the whole crime was committed on an emotional basis. Both I and the lady involved were in a highly emotional state. 
And as for Alma and Francis, they were buried in unmarked graves beside one another in Bournemouth, England. Alma's funeral was held on June 8, 1935, and was attended by 3,000 people, most of whom were women. Francis's grave remained without a gravestone until decades later when a descendant of his eventually had a new grave marker erected. But the question of where Francis Rattenbury's spirit ended up has been the topic of many ghost tours throughout downtown Victoria. According to some, Francis Rattenbury's spirit made its way back to Canada. Francis was largely unknown in England and died in tragedy. But in Victoria, he had accomplished so much. Perhaps his ghost feels more at peace walking down the halls of the buildings that he built. At the Fairmont Empress Hotel, guests and staff have reported a specter resembling Rattenbury, wearing an overcoat, a top hat, and wandering the halls and ascending its creaky staircases. Across the street, staff working alone after hours in the Parliament buildings report hearing echoing footsteps, whistling, voices, and papers rustling in empty offices. A dark, shadowy figure is sometimes seen in the hallways. People who have seen it can't quite make out the face, but they believe the ghost to be Francis Rattenbury. The following is from an article in the Province newspaper reported by Mike Smith on October 27, 2014, in an article titled, Is the B.C. Legislature Haunted? A lot of people sure think so. Quote, And then there's the B.C. Legislature itself which has got to be the spookiest spot of all. Not because it's full of scary politicians. This place is full of ghosts. Just ask the frightened people who work there. Oh yes, the building is haunted, assures Craig James, the kindly clerk of the legislature, who invites me into his comfortable book-lined study and proceeds to scare the wits out of me. Many of the staff around here have seen things and heard things, things that they can't explain. Like the committee clerk who was working alone in her office a few years back. She looked out her door, just down the corridor from the legislative chamber. All of a sudden, she saw a figure in a black cloak floating along the hall. It went along the speaker's corridor, past the entrance to the chamber, and then turned left into the library. She was terrified and phoned security. They came and checked it out, but there was nothing, nobody there. She was so scared she had to be escorted out of the building. The security people told her, don't worry, it's probably just Rattenbury. Rattenbury was egotistical, arrogant, and full of himself, said John Adams, a Victoria historian and researcher into the paranormal. But in England, he was completely unknown. That's why his ghost returned to haunt the legislature and the empress to gratify his insatiable ego and cravings for attention. Adams conducts popular ghost walks for tourists, and a few years ago, a honeymooning couple told him they encountered Rattenbury at the empress. They were talking in the lower lobby and the newlywed wife noticed a man in an old-fashioned suit peeking around the corner at them. Then, as they walked up a staircase, she looked over her shoulder and the man was suddenly at the bottom of the stairs. She whispered to her husband, There he is again. Now they both look back and the figure instantly disappeared before their eyes. He heard another spine-tingling tale from one of the legislature's parliamentary players. The troupe of young actors who portray costumed historical characters to the delight of tourists. One young man, playing the role of Rattenbury in full period costume, was waiting for his fellow performers in the upper rotunda. They arrived and said, 
How did you get up here so quickly? He said, what are you talking about? I've been standing here waiting for you. And they said, no, you haven't. We saw you downstairs, and you came up in the elevator with us. They realized that Rattenbury's ghost must have been in the elevator with them. And if you think these political poltergeists rattle the nerves of the parliamentary employees, you're absolutely right. That's why many will escape a few blocks away to the friendly bar at the James Bay Inn, a favored watering hole, which is also haunted. But that'll be a tale for another episode. Before we end this tragic and macabre tale, there were some positive outcomes for this story. Both of Alma's sons went on to live happy and long lives with families and professional careers. John, the son of Francis and Alma, became an architect. In 1998, he was invited back to Victoria for the 100th anniversary of the legislature, his father's building. The festivities showed that the old scandals had been long forgotten and that Francis Rattenbury was a celebrated name in Victoria's history. The city and the province were shaped by Francis's work. After the ceremony, John described the experience as a personal closing of a circle and the highlight of my life. So next time you find yourself in Victoria's inner harbor, pay close attention around the causeway for a thin man with a mustache and a black cloak. So the next time you find yourself in Victoria's inner harbor, the legislature building, or the Empress Hotel, pay close attention. Look out for a thin man with a mustache and a black cloak and a cane. He may be one of Canada's most famous architects out for a spooky walk and some fresh air. We would like to thank you for joining us for this special Halloween episode for our Patreon listeners. As always, we thank you so very much for supporting the podcast, and we wish you a very safe and happy Halloween. We will see you soon, so until then, take care of yourselves and each other. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.